Um, let's give it up for our worship team. It's good stuff. It's good. Um, in your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. That is where we're going to be this evening. Um, there's probably some hardback Bibles floating around, maybe somewhat. If you don't have one, they're over there on the far wall. You can go over and snag one real fast. But Galatians chapter 3. As people are getting a Bible, getting to Galatians 3, last week I kind of want to touch briefly because we're hitting the same same chapter, same train of thought. Paul um, was talking to the Galatians, obviously, and he was using some strong language. In the first part of chapter 3, he talks about how, how could you be so foolish, and he's using some strong language towards people that he loves. And he really hits hard on this. He calls them foolish a couple of times, and it it brought to question, why was Paul so passionate about their foolishness? And we talked about how um, they were trading the gospel message for something that wasn't the gospel. They were buying into false teachers who were adding to the gospel message, saying that you must do and perform and be something. And, and ultimately, Paul was saying, guys, this, was, this is not the gospel message, and you're buying into it. And so he uses a couple different forms of arguments to help persuade them back to the one true gospel. And he's like, you guys, personal testimony, like, guys, you were there, you saw, you were with like in the in the situation, you were able to draw from personal experience of Christ's crucifixion, and that's his two word message that he will just continue to drill home. Not only in the book of Galatians, but in Paul's other letters, he'll keep saying, "Christ crucified, Christ crucified," and that's a crucial message because this gospel message that the Galatians were buying into was, "You must work." you must do, you must perform the law. And Christ crucified, that message destroys a works-based faith because the work has already been done by Christ. And it's not for, not for you to do, it's that Christ has already done it. And all you have to do is believe. So Paul uses personal testimony to get these people to see. Then he uses scriptural argument and he uses an example in the Old Testament, he uses Abraham. He uses Abraham as an example of a man of faith, that he was a man of faith and that he heard from God and he acted out of belief. Whenever Abraham was told that you need to sacrifice your son, the son that you love, and Abraham only had one son and he prayed desperately for this son and his wife was well along in years and was past childbearing years but God blessed them with the son and God says you need to sacrifice that son Abraham believed and he acted into that belief and he was about moments away from striking his own son sacrificing him and an angel of the Lord stops him and says wait now I know that you fear God Abraham was a great example of faith. So Paul was saying, you don't need to work. Christ crucified. The work has been done. All you have to do is believe. Abraham is an example of that belief. Christ crucified. Tonight, we're going to kind of continue in that train of thought in chapter 3. And I want to talk about the law for a second. 
And so the main point tonight is that the law shows us who we really are and who Christ really is. The law shows us who we really are and who Christ really is. So we're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about covenants and promise. In this passage, I'm going to read it in its entirety like I always do. This is a hard passage. There's a lot there. There's a lot of references. I don't feel like, honestly, if I'm gut-wrenchingly honest, I don't feel like I'm going to do this passage justice because there's so much here. We're going to do what we can in our time together, but no, we're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about covenants. We're going to talk about promises, and there, I wish we had more time to talk about it more in depth, but we're going to read Galatians 3, 15 through 29 in its entirety. We're going to pray. We're going to dig our heels in. So it says this, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, I'm using human illustration. No one set aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. God, we need your help here. God, this passage is big, it's dense, it's lofty, and Lord, we need your understanding. So God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us a softened and tender heart towards your word. God, we long to hear from you, long to be shaped by you, and we know that we can do that through your word and through your spirit. So God, we ask this of you. Amen. So again, I want to preface tonight that this is a tough topic, and I'm not super well versed in it, much like most of the things I probably talk about. Law and covenants are something that are truly fascinating. Now, I've sat through a number of lectures and, and lessons about covenants, and it's enough to know that you like pique my interest, and like I need to read more about that, and I haven't gotten to that part yet where I want to read more about covenants, because there is much there. 
It really opened my eyes to what I honestly don't know or have yet to uncover when it comes to the law, covenants, and promises. So with that, we're just going to dive in. I want to kind of look at verses 15 through 18. It says, brothers and sisters, I'm using human illustration. So the past couple illustrations was personal testimony. He used scriptural argument. Now he's using human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So Paul's using an actual illustration to prove a point to the Galatians again. He uses the example of a will. No one makes additions or changes to a validated will. Your parents may have a will that basically states that if something were to happen to them, they already have a will that states who gets what of theirs and what happens to their children, who they live with and such. It's truly an awful meeting to be a part of, to sit through those and to make those morbid decisions. If something were to happen to us, here's what would happen to my things and my children. The crucial and important part of this is, and why they're so helpful, is that wills are legally bound, meaning that I can't just go into an attorney's office and say, I want Keith's family boat. One, Keith may be like, I don't have a family boat. If you do, I want it, you know, but I can't go into the attorney's office and say, I want to make changes to Keith's will, change it from his, whoever he decided, but make it go to me now. I can't do that. Why? Because it's validated. It's legally bound. I can't make additions and I can't make subtractions from a human will. I can't do it. They're helpful in that way. That human wills can't be altered. Once it's set, It's set even after your parents pass away. The will is set. It can't be altered just because you don't like what it says. So you have the Galatian people here entertaining a different gospel, a false gospel, adding to the message. And Paul is using the legal will or a covenant to say you can't add to it. The gospel is the gospel whether you like it or not. But people want to add to the Old Testament law and say, and put it on top of the gospel message. It was from Moses. How bad could it be? We love Moses. He's a righteous dude. How come we can't just take what he brought us and put it on top of the gospel message? That's what they're thinking. Paul says in verse 17 that the law does not invalidate a covenant previously set in motion by God. The law of Moses does not turn God's promise to Abraham into something other than what it is, a promise. Here's why this is a powerful argument from Paul. If the law of Moses in the Old Testament came as a way of salvation, let's just say Jesus died, everything happened with Jesus, but let's just say God allowed the Old Testament law to also be a means of salvation. Let's just say that's the case, meaning that you could follow the law and be saved, not have faith in Jesus. Then it means that God has changed his mind. 
that it would mean that God had decided that we don't actually need a Savior and that he would give out his blessing based on performance and not on promise. This promise of grace through faith in Jesus Christ was sealed with a covenant. And covenants are a bigger deal than what we may appear on the surface. Genesis 15 paints a pretty clear picture of this. Abram asked God, how can I know that I will gain possession of the promised blessing? God tells Abram to get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Now, Abraham knows exactly what to do with these things. He's going to sacrifice them. He cuts them in half. He arranges them, split open, and sets them apart opposite of each other. This seems strange and barbaric, but I want you to follow me in this. In Abram's day, this was how a covenant was signed, was that animals were to be sacrificed, laid equal apart from each other, and you would walk through this passage, I guess, of, this, of these sacrifices. Now in our day, we have contracts. We don't have covenants very much. We have contracts. You read the fine print. You read every word. You sign the dotted line. Contracts are made out of distrust. I don't trust that you're going to do what we agreed on, so I need you to sign this contract just to ensure that we're going to be squared away here. Covenants aren't signed on a dotted line at the bottom with terms and conditions. Each covenant maker would split the animals, walk between the halves of the animals, and it was, graf it was graphic, but it would say this essentially, if I break this covenant, may I be cut up and cut off. I will deserve to die just like these animals did. The same is actually true whenever we enter into a marital covenant, is why in a marriage ceremony you see the bride and groom both walk down the aisle with two equal sides apart from each other and may the same thing happen to me if I don't uphold this covenant I'm entering into. God is a covenant-keeping God. He's good on his promises. He's a God who wraps his promises in covenants. And the beauty of this covenant is that Abram doesn't have the law to keep an order for this to work. Abram doesn't have to uphold anything about it. It's all God's initiative. That Abram doesn't have to uphold anything. It is a covenant between him and God, and Abram just gets to receive it. Like I said, contracts are made out of distrust and covenants are made out of trust that I keep my promises and my life is dependent upon it. So Paul brings this example from Genesis 15 to point out to the Galatians the impossibility of God adding obedience demands to his covenantal promise. God wouldn't add obedience demands like upholding the law to the gospel message because if you're upholding the law over having faith in Jesus, you're trying to earn and work your faith out instead of trusting Christ crucified. The work's been done. Believe. So what's the purpose of the law? Why the law then? Why was it there? 
Verse 19 addresses that very question. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. What's another word for transgressions? Not a trick question. What's another word for transgressions? The one you're thinking is it. Sin. It was added for the sake of sins until the seed. Now notice this seed is different than the other seed. What is different about this seed in Scripture? Look at it. Yeah. The S in seed is capitalized. It's not in the other. So why was the law given? It was added for the sake of sins until the seed. Why is that word capitalized? Jesus. Sunday school answer. That's it. You guys could have said it. You missed your opportunity. Jesus. This, this is talking about Jesus. The, for the sake of sins until the seed. Jesus to whom the promise was made would come. Why was the law given? It was given for the sake of sins until Jesus was to come. The law was put into effect through the angels by means of a mediator. So to answer the question, what's the purpose of the law? It was for the sake of sins, meaning it was not a place to tell us about salvation. It was rather a place to tell us about our sins. I know my sin because I see the law. I can't keep the law. I can try as hard as I can, but I cannot keep the law. And the reason why I know I'm a sinner is because I've seen the law and I can't uphold it. It shows us that we are promise breakers, law breakers. We are the problem when it comes to our sin. Now in this passage, I was trying to study my darndest to get to get here, and it's, uh, commentators were telling me that verses 19 and 20 are not widely agreed upon. They're hard to interpret, honestly, but it's not in the way of what we're going to actually get from the passage. But ultimately, the law shows us our sin and shows us that we have a great need, that we need a Savior, that we need to be rescued. The law shows us who we really are and who Christ really is. Jump down with me to verse 23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, but through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Before Jesus, we were confined and bound by the law, needing faith that God is who he says he is. Had Jesus not stepped in, we would all be subject to the law, imprisoned and bound under lock and key. We need a savior. You and I need rescued. And the law shows us that. But at the same time, may we grow in thankfulness and in gratitude towards Jesus that he stepped in. We couldn't fill the law. We were done. We were doomed and destroyed, and Jesus stepped in. So I don't have to uphold to the law, but I need to have faith in Jesus that he 
is the Son of God, that He is sinless and that His death bore our payment for sin so that when we stand before God, God doesn't see us. He sees the righteousness of Jesus clothed in righteousness. We need a Savior. And so the gospel allows us to truly honor the law in a way that those bound by the law cannot. Without the gospel, we may obey the law. We can do our best to uphold the law and actually turn out to be a pretty decent human being on this earth, but we will learn to hate the law because it's basically rules without relationship. And when we believe and take hold of the gospel, we will gravitate towards honoring God's law because our heart will will grow closer and closer to his heart, meaning that we may obey God and his design, not for personal gain, but out of delight for our Savior. See, law and grace can work together. People want to have something like a list to follow, like I want a checkbox of like, here are the things that I must do to be in relationship with God. And we want those checkboxes because we can check off boxes while also neglecting the seriousness of our sin. I'd rather have a list of do's and don'ts because my heart doesn't have to be invested in a checklist. And I said this last week, but God is not interested in our list of do's and don'ts. He's interested in our heart. He wants our heart. We'd rather just keep things surface level though, neglect the seriousness of our sin. God is running after us, after our hearts. It's the law that shows us who we really are and who Christ really is. May we grow in thankfulness and gratitude for Jesus saving us from the law that we can never keep. And it's through his work, Christ crucified, that we may live in freedom. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed to our D groups. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Lord, and that he defeated sin. He defeated our sinfulness. God, the very things that we chase after and yet for us to find out that they do not sustain, God, forgive us. Renew our hearts. God, would you give us a thirst for righteousness and for your word? God, I pray in our times of D groups, Lord, that you would just continue to shape our hearts. God, help us to not cling towards things like the law but help us to cling to the cross and Christ crucified. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.